Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Godway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lin, senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. And as always, we're on air thanks to support from the ANU Centre on China in the World and the Department of Pacific Affairs. Joseph Stalin once remarked, "If I could control the medium of the American motion picture." I would need nothing else to convert the entire world to communism. Such a project may have been taken on by China's President Xi Jinping, who, in his battle to win the hearts and minds of the world, is aggressively tapping cinema, both Hollywood and Chinese. China's now got more screens than anywhere else in the world. It's the second largest market, and it's growing at nine percent each year, while the U.S. and Hollywood takings are at a twenty-two year low. To discuss China's growing grip on Hollywood, we're joined by Ying Zhu, professor of cinema studies at the City University of New York and director of the Center for Film and Moving Image Research at the Academy of Film, Hong Kong Baptist University. We're also joined by Rebecca Davis, the new Beijing bureau chief for Variety magazine. China's long had a quota system where it caps the number of foreign films entering the Chinese market, and that's now at thirty-four films a year. Of course, the Chinese film market, with all these screens, must be playing more of a role when it comes to Hollywood studios. Rebecca, how do those considerations of appealing to the Chinese market? How do they play into Hollywood sort of content decisions? So I think they play a role in a number of ways. A friend of mine, Amy Chin, wrote a piece、uh, not long ago that opened with a really good point. When was the last time you remember seeing、uh, a Hollywood movie that had Chinese villains? Pretty much never, right? Like, and and that's because nowadays, if you want your film to be approved by Chinese censors and given access to the China market, you can't have a Chinese villain. You need to portray a positive. Image of China that the censors are going to approve and allow you to access this enormous cake of a market that everyone wants a slice of,、um, and so you get、uh, situations like Doctor Strange, the film where you know the original character is supposed to be a Tibetan,、uh, and instead you have、uh, Tilda Swinton playing whitewashing that completely、um, and not having this Tibetan character at all and having it be a white woman. You wonder what I see in your future. Possibility. Why are you doing this? There are other ways to save lives. So much you don't know. And、uh, you have situations where, in the Sony emails that were leaked、um, a number of years back, you could see discussions in this major Hollywood studio of, "Hey, well, let's not have this particular film blow up the Great Wall. Let's have them blow up the Taj Mahal instead, because if we blow up the Great Wall, you know, it's really not necessary, and maybe we won't be able to access the the China market afterwards." So, as the Chinese box office grows. At at such a rate, especially when there's sort of a global economic slowdown elsewhere, these sorts of considerations become even more and more important for Hollywood films. And you'll see that、um, tastes are also very different in China. So a movie that might not do enormously well, like like say Venom,、uh, did much better in China in the China market than it did in、uh, in the U.S. And so considerations like these, where you could make a film that maybe doesn't resonate super well in the U.S. but somehow hits a chord in China. Uh, and that could really make or break you. So these sorts of considerations are 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 huge. You should be extremely afraid. So was that by accident that it turned out to be a hit in China? Were they expecting that Venom would、uh, go across so well? I think it's always kind of a surprise, right? You don't know until it until it comes. 
uh, what exactly we'll play. Um, but uh, certain things, like for instance, the example that's often used is a film called Warcraft, uh, which was a um, off a video game, which was super popular in, in China, and it did like four times as well in China as it did in the U.S. Um, because people were just fans here, and they like special effects, they like IPs that they recognize. If we do not unite, our world will perish. This doesn't need to happen. There is one who may help us. For orcs, there is no other life but war. No, but with the human's help, there could be. Yingzhu, you've spoken about the film The Meg, which is one that did very well in China and has never really been heard of anywhere else. What you people discovered is bigger than we ever thought possible. How big is that thing? It was the largest shark that ever existed. A living fossil. Thought to have been extinct over two million years. Wrong. My God. It's Megalodon. So it's a film about a massive shark. I mean, was it made for the China market? You know, the Meg is basically a knockoff of uh, Steven Spielberg's Jaws, uh, made in the early 1970s. But I do have to say, actually, Meg is the example of a film that actually uh, played well in both China and the U.S. market. If you look at a box office record, the, the revenues kind of split evenly in the Chinese market and the U.S. market, which is kind of unheard of for a, a co-production uh, from China. And so that actually is very interesting. So so Mag came uh, last year, which is a year after the success, domestic success of Wolf Warrior 2. But it was, uh, Wolf Warrior 2 received quite bad reviews uh, in actually in, in, in the US and elsewhere, also in China as well, even though it did well uh, in terms of box office revenue, the kind of jingoistic you know, cultural sensitivity really offended a lot of people uh, overseas. So Wolf Warrior 2 being that sort of hugely nationalistic film where, was it Chinese special forces basically save the world? Save Africa. And it was also actually a, a knockoff of Rainbow, the first blood that came into China in the 1980s. Uh, it was a huge blockbuster success uh, in China when we were first introduced to China. And so, so after this, the, the, the failure of this film in garnering real audiences overseas, I think uh, the, the Chinese came up with this concept of Mac. And, and so the idea is to make a cultural light film that's sort of a, a staying away from the propagandistic tendency and, and, and the film actually opened, uh, you know, quite okay uh, in, in the U.S. market as well. And last summer, it was one of the blockbuster films. So that actually is an interesting example of uh, how uh, the Chinese filmmakers were very aware of what the problem is, uh, what, you know, what are the obstacles for them in, you know, kind of branch out into the international market. And the Meg is also an example, I guess, of content shifting, right? It's based on, a, I think, a trilogy of novels. It's based on books. And I think they're supposed to be set in Japan, um, but instead, where who, who's on that submarine? It's it's a Chinese person. Uh, it's set in China, um, and that's both because of content reasons and also for uh, financial reasons. If you're a co-production, you are not subject to the same revenue-sharing quota system as other studio films. And so, if you're a co-production and you shoot some of your stuff, half your stuff in Senya, and you employ a Chinese crew to a certain extent, and you have Chinese characters or Chinese companies on board, then you are going to have a you know a much better chance of accessing that market, you're not going to be shut out because of um, perhaps the censor doesn't, you know, 
wake up wakes up on the wrong side of the bed that day and doesn't doesn't want to let in your particular film. Does this mean that we're much more likely to see kind of films set in China or films with Chinese characters? just inserted. Absolutely, because when you look at the Mac, um, so even though the producer is really is kind of associated with the head of Shanghai Media Group, his point is, yeah, this is a cultural light film. We're not here to propagate Chinese culture. But when you look at this film, it's, it's you know, the, the iconographers of this film, it's all it, because the story happens in Hainan, right? It's a Chinese tourist town in Hainan. So you'll see more and more of these Chinese landscapes being incorporated as landmark you know, uh, landscapes in, in the kind of assortment of collections for, for cinema. Uh, you know, once upon a time, you know, these iconic uh, uh, scenes are all in New York. We see New York, we see L.A., right? We, we see Paris, we see London. We don't see China. But nowadays you see China. Absolutely. They just, you know, kind of follow the old playbook. This is about a localizing strategy. And thinking about that strategy, it seems China almost is already moving on to the next level because uh, if you think of the co-productions they've had with India, so there were these three movies, um, Buddies in India, Kung Fu Yoga and Xuanzang, all produced under a China-India state agreement that was commissioned during Xi Jinping's state visit to India, I think in um, 2015. And in Kung Fu Yoga, um, the co-producer pulled out largely, I think, because of content reasons. It was portraying India in a very stereotypical kind of way. But it was a co-production or a, a film shot in India, but India is almost incidental to it. It's just scenery for a film which really targets the Chinese audience rather than the Indian audience. I mean, can these sorts of things work as diplomatic tools or, or are they always going to be Chinese films for Chinese markets? That's the good question. That, that is, you know, how much of this, uh, if the world is, is ready to embrace this kind of image? Um, so that's the, that's the question. But I wanted to go back to, this is an interesting thing because you were mentioning Warcraft. So it came out in 2016 uh, with a price tag of $160 million, And it was a huge financial flop in the U.S. But it racked up $156 million in its first five days of Chinese uh, release. So that immediately it almost recouped the whole uh, investment. And because of the success, the speculation has it to perhaps we could do a sequel just cater solely to the Chinese market. Why do we even need to bother to look at the U.S. market? Can we do that? So the Hong Kong martial artist film star turned the Chinese culture ambassador, Jackie Chang, remarked that, and quoting him, he says, Warcraft made 600 million yuan, which is equivalent of 64 million pounds in two days, and this has scared Americans. And he said, if we can make a film that earns 10 billion yuan, then people from all over the world who want to study film will learn Chinese instead of us having to learn English. Now, that's a very interesting, you know, <laughs> his prediction linking the popularity film with linguistic potency is very interesting. That's such a huge leap. But, I mean, Chinese films are going to have to get a lot better before they have that kind of influence on the rest of the world, aren't they? Absolutely. So, so it's the question of, is the rest of the world ready? I think it gets back to the fundamentals, the question of what makes a good film. I mean, really, what makes a good film? And, uh, you know, judging by the reactions of uh, international audiences, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the reception is very lukewarm. No, the world is not ready yet. Mm-hmm. Or oh, is it the, the, the world's not ready or is it simply that to make a Chinese film, you still face all these restrictions on what can be in the film? I mean, even, um, you know, no time travel, nothing about real estate, no ghost stories, um, you know, enormous numbers of movies about the Second World War because it's always safe to kick the Japanese. I mean, Rebecca, um, 
what sort of controls are there in the Xi Jinping era? And, and you know, is this why China is going to struggle to come up with a worldwide blockbuster? China already recognises uh, very strongly uh, that film is the medium that it needs to tell its story to the world. One of Xi Jinping's major policy stances, major, major catchphrases is like, like, how do we tell the Chinese story? Um, and it's sort of boring and administrative, but it's actually having a huge impact that last year um, they decided to sort of reshuffle how the government uh, operates when it comes to media. And so they put they gave film special consideration and put it under, uh, split it off from what it used to be under the, um, it was sarfed and that it was sapped with two Ps, which is awful to say. Uh, and thank God that's gone. And now we just have um, the National Film Bureau, which is underneath now the propaganda department. And so it actually elevated film separate from uh, radio and television uh, to a higher uh, level directly under the propaganda department's control. And so the head of the film bureau is now um, also uh, an official in the propaganda department. Um, And so that sort of just goes to show, you know, like your opening quote with Stalin recognizing the importance of of film over other things, that for Xi Jinping's China, this is is a huge part of their soft power push um, and their own uh, image building. Um, I think the problem you have is, though, is that the U.S. is still so dominant uh, because its 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 industry is much more mature because English language is still the lingua franca, and that, for instance, Americans really hate watching movies with subtitles. You know, it's just it's still a huge a huge barrier, and we're not used to watching dubbed films the way that say other countries might be. Um, and so there's that barrier. But I think co-productions still remain a very they come from a financial place. They're not coming from an artistic place. They're not happening because people think, wow, we're going to have so much more artistic integrity if we can make this according to the standards that Chinese censors want. We've yet to see a really breakout co-production in, on terms other than, I guess, the Meg is to date the most successful one. What you people discovered is an even bigger gold mine than we ever thought possible. We are completely unprepared to deal with creatures like Megalodon. I understand we can get prepared. I'm talking about a long term. That's going to be the other alternative. What's that? My daughter. I think it's also interesting to look at how, uh, actually, in recent years, what's been given a theatrical release in China has actually been much more permissible. You've seen um, art house titles that are getting theatrical releases and documentary titles that, you know, five years ago, there wouldn't have been an audience for them. And it certainly would have made it wouldn't have made it into theaters. And now they are. Um, You have actually some sometimes some rather edgy films like a year or two ago, there was like Angels Wear White. Um, which was an indie film about sexual abuse of of minors. Uh, of course, it's tied up with a tiny bow at the end, where you know the police save the day and the bad guys are prosecuted. But it, it was a really hard hitting, interesting film, and that was released theatrically. And so, as audiences get more sophisticated, censors can't just serve them, you know, the same dish day after day after day. They also have a line to walk of allowing the creation of content that will still get people into cinemas, um, who, that will still make people want to buy tickets so that they can, they can hit their targets. It's a really interesting point because I wondered, like a film like Bao Bei, uh, Baby, which didn't have a neat bow at the end, like it was just an absolutely gutting film about how poorly women are treated and how poorly disabled people are treated by the Chinese legal system. And it wasn't like, um, you know, films we've seen in the past where you make fun of the woman or you kind of have a funny story. How does something like that get through? It really surprised me because it was a, a genuinely, it seemed to be completely critical of the regime and yet there it was screening in China. But so I think that's kind of actually the thing that's not worrisome but interesting is that as the space of what could get a theatrical release 
sort of evolves. And as the financial gains of getting that theatrical release are so huge, the number of people who are making truly independent works is shrinking. Like there's, there's very few people who are making really indie, indie stuff. No one's going to fund, uh, you know, projects anymore that are probably can't get a theatrical release because, you know, as that as the boundary of what might get a theatrical release expands, I think people are starting to make more compromises. Maybe you, you know, you do tie that little bow at the end because the gain you have so much to gain and so much to lose. Right. So I think uh, when we talk about Chinese film, we really do need to look beyond the kind of oppositional. And in the mainstream, or not the, the proper, the kind of blockbuster propaganda. There are a large chunk of in between films. There are a lot of films that that's bread and butter in China, and and I think that when we talk about Chinese film, this is why I feel strongly that we should be very careful not to reduce Chinese film into a pure political discourse. It's more than that. I think what's really interesting though is if you look at the top grossing Chinese films of all time, the top two, Wolf Warrior Two, and um, recently Wandering Earth. They still are. I mean, Wandering Earth got praised for being less nationalistic, but even though the film itself is not like rah rah China, the response to it is very nationalistic. I think these are movies that, because they're still not amazing, like, you know, it, like people have the internet now, people are familiar with Hollywood, they can stream it on their TVs, they can see whatever. And so if you're really being very honest, you know, when watching that, that there's still a huge gap technically um, in terms of storytelling, in terms of many things, both because of budget even, because it's half the budget of, quarter of the budget of big Hollywood blockbusters. Watching it, you know it's not up to that international standard, right? I think when a movie reaches beyond the like 1 billion, 2 billion, 3 billion rimming B mark, you're pulling in people into the theaters that usually wouldn't even be super interested in film. There has to be some other element that makes them want to see the movie. And I think often at this stage in China's development, that's a sentiment of, well, I'm really proud that my country did this. I mean, how can you even trust the box office take, though, and use that as an indicator? Because you get these films, like I'm thinking particularly of the founding of the nation, films like that, which sort of had loads of celebrities who all worked for free, and then all the work units were buying tickets. And, you know, tickets were just being given out and yet, you know, a lot of the reporting was this film has done so well. But in fact, has it really done that well when the people who were going to see it were basically, you know, forced to go there on work unit outings? So for for War for Your Two, I think, you know, I can verify the box office revenue, but I think it did pretty well domestically. But it had a terrible word of mouth. If you get online, you will see the terrible, you know, very negative word of mouth. But on the other hand, it does, when you talk about popularity, uh, you know, you, you're right, there is a very strong grassroots nationalistic sentiment. And, you know, Chinese film industry is, is very well kind of positioned to, to tap into that sentiment. And the sentiment happens to kind of uh, echo what the, the Chinese government wants. So, so you here you see the kind of, kind of, kind of cross-fertilization between uh, the commerce and, and the politics. And at this very interesting historical conjunction, what's happening in China is not an isolated instance when you look around globally, right? So the kind of a tribalism, populist and nativism and nationalism is on the rise. But I mean, one other way that um, Xi Jinping's goal of, of telling China's story well can work much more effectively, taking the propaganda bureau entirely out of the equation, um, is with money. Uh, so we've seen um, the Chinese conglomerate Wanda, which in uh, 2016 bought up legendary entertainment. And uh, Wanda um, bought AMC theatres, giving them control over uh, 8,200 cinema screens worldwide. Uh, but one of the first products of this new creation was Great Wall, starring Matt Damon. Um, it was about a group of European mercenaries who joined the Chinese army to defend the iconic structure. I think we have some sound from it. 
traveled thousands of miles in search of a weapon more powerful than we've ever known. Why are you here? We came to trade. You lie. You are thieves. This film grossed $334 million worldwide, which was twice its budget, so commercially it, it did okay. Um, but it got terrible press. Uh, Yingzhu, why was this film not a soft power win for Beijing? I mean, you've got Matt Damon and the Great Wall. How can that not be a triumph? One of the occupational hazards is to have to watch these movies, you know, movies such as The Great War and The Mag. That gets back to the point that we were talking about, the fundamentals of storytelling, what makes a good film, right? What makes a good film? You have to tell a real good story, a story with a very genuine human touch. And I I don't see this in in many of these huge blockbuster co-productions. That's uh, one reason. There's so many variety ways that the film is just so terrible. I guess from from a production point of view, I, I think Great Wall is just, I think, I mean, it's a mess, right? It, it doesn't please anyone. Everyone hates it. it you know, it, it, sorry, maybe I shouldn't say Great Wall is acknowledged to be quite a mess, like a, 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 people trying to come together but ending up pleasing no one. And I think that did come down on the production side to just um, cultural differences in, in how to work together as a team with Hollywood people, from what I've heard, coming in with their own ideas of how things work. Zhang Yimo, a very strong, confident director in his own right, but in his own manner. And it's his first, you know, big collaboration with a, with this kind of production and feeling like someone who's used... In China, the director is king. Like, everyone lets the director call the shots. It's very director-driven. Um, it's like the director is the emperor and everyone just sort of makes everything work. So, And in this collaboration, I think he had... You know, I don't know. I, th- I think it was it was still early stages of Hollywood and China trying to figure out how to work together culturally, and and it failed in large part because people came with different ideas, and it ended up being what it was, right? And why well, wasn't a soft power in? Because it was bad. <laughs> so, I mean, are we likely to see more co-productions in different ways? Are we likely to see way more Chinese content coming on Netflix and other platforms? I think it's going to be a while before we see really, really successful and artistic and well-done co-productions, frankly. I think there's still a lot of cultural barriers to overcome. Um, I guess I, I, I've looked at most closely in animation. For instance, I wrote um, a few months ago about uh, Oriental DreamWorks, which was once touted as the flagship Hollywood China co-venture. Uh, it was founded when Jeffrey Katzenberg, the head of DreamWorks, like had lunch with Xi Jinping when he, Xi Jinping went on his first visit to the U.S. as vice president and he, like, went to a Lakers game and had lunch. And after that, he announced that, oh, yeah, we're going to create Oriental DreamWorks, a co-venture between Chinese kind of state-backed um, companies and and DreamWorks itself. And uh, and it was this big flagship thing. And he, Katzenberg said Xi Jinping himself had signed off on it. DreamWorks was taken over by NBC Universal, and NBC Universal decided to drop its stake in the project. And so it, it's now fully Chinese-owned, and it's still trying to be kind of like a DreamWorks, but... but basically in the opposite faction of how it started out um, in the beginning. And I don't think it's going to be, I I think it has a great shot at, you know, creating cool movies, but it's just totally um, strategically different now because initially it wanted to be, if you're an animation studio, you need a team of hundreds of people who have a pipeline of projects so that it's sort of like a, a car factory, like they always have something to be working on so you can employ such a large team of skilled workers. Um, and now they've basically stripped down to from like 100, like maybe 150 people, animators to, you know, like 20. Um, and so they're just doing the, some development work and outsourcing Basically, in the past year, the whole industry has been completely upended by total, you know, changes to the tax policies and different regulations. So it's kind of a, a really rough year for 
the Chinese film industry. And um, consequently, I think it's the type of um, interaction it has with Hollywood has has really changed. Part of part of reasons really also because of uncertainty with the you know the the, the Sino-U.S. trade uh, war. Um, that has put everything in suspense. Hollywood and China were in the process of negotiating a new deal that might expand uh, quotas, might raise quotas, and so on and so forth. Uh, but it was all—it's now all put in in a pause, right? Because we don't know what the, the final outcome uh, might be for the trade war. The co-production—I think the Chinese has also very subtly changed its strategy in recent years. Now you have. Uh, um, a huge influx of Chinese money into Hollywood directly, and they are actually investing in making mainstream Hollywood films. Uh, the perfect example is the studio STX. STX is signed with Huayi to produce, I don't remember the number, to produce a series of, of films, what he called A-class, um, medium-budget films that was used to be Hollywood's stable before you know 1970s. And, and these films are actually gradually coming out uh, last year, this year, and you will see. These are all a very solid uh, mainstream Hollywood films that's catered to the U.S. market. And the Oscar goes to Bow. This is the first Oscar. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting to look at the Oscars, for instance. So after the Oscar films came out, there were all these Xinhua articles that were like, this is a milestone for Chinese cinema. And you're like, what? Because there were no really, you know, Asian movies really in there. But technically, um, Alibaba Pictures had backed Green Book, which won Best Picture. Um, and Perfect World had backed Black Klansman and First Man, which were sort of like contenders. And, and, so, and, and that they sort of took credit also for that there were Chinese, uh, ethnic Chinese directors for the best documentary, Free Solo. And the person who directed the winning short, Bao, the really adorable dumpling, or her parents were from Sichuan, and you know that was like a big headline in China. Um, so instead of going out and buying a whole studio or buying a whole cinema chain, now it's more you have these sort of, not they're not small companies by any means, but smaller companies like Alibaba or Tencent or something, or Perfect World. I think, you know, this is one of the things, if you think about influence, this is kind of very diffused, gradual uh, infiltration, if you will. And it's interesting because I guess you're still exerting that influence, but it's probably happening at a much earlier stage, so it's not making the headlines anymore, you know, the changes in villains or whatever. We, 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 don't, we can't even see where the influence is happening anymore. And also this has become a kind of a, you know, it's just a normalization of this entire exchange now. It's, it's no longer, oh, they try to censor some bad people uh, from a James Bond movie. They no longer do that. Of course, you don't no need to do that anymore because you know studios are very mindful of what the boundaries are, so they don't do that. So censorship has you know is playing in a particular in a, in a very different way now. I'm Tony Stark. I build neat stuff. I got a great girl, and occasionally save the world. I mean, one, one example that, that, that comes to mind when you're talking about not doing that sort of thing anymore is um, Iron Man 3, where they seem to come out with different versions for different audiences, so one for America, one for China. Um, and there are all these conspiracy series kind of swirling around um, Fan Bingbing, and, um, you know, who was an unnamed assistant, doesn't appear anywhere in the credits, to a Chinese scientist. Um, we, we've got a clip of that uh, movie here. We <laughs> 
万一要有什么闪失的话，全世界将失去一个伟大的英雄。是。I mean, do you have any idea what were the factors behind、uh, behind that? I think we moved beyond the era where you can just stick a Chinese person in your film for two seconds and say, "Oh wow, they're going to love it now." You know, like I think Chinese audiences are more sophisticated than that. Once we can figure out how to tell a story that works for both audiences, but I think it's really hard. I don't think you. I think you can't. I think what where China's at at the moment. Well, I think it's it's interesting because you know Xi Jinping, you know, as as we all know by reading the WikiLeaks,、um, and he was the big Hollywood film fan. He loved World War films. So he's, you know, the signal is for 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 the Chinese to learn from Hollywood, you know, how to do these films, how to do it well.、Uh, and one of the things he talked about is, you know, Hollywood films always have a happy ending. Why can't we have a happy ending? That's the positive energy. <laughs> so, so and so so that's the part of the, what the China narrative is, you know, project a, a China that's confident. But it's interesting that what you are continually describing is that Chinese audiences are kind of moving beyond the constraints that are being placed on them. You know that they're just not buying these kind of narratives that are being presented to them. Are we ever going to get to a stage where you've got the tail wagging the dog and the audiences are going to be the thing that's going to push Chinese film to be a bit better?、Uh, what plays really well are the real, pure Hollywood blockbuster films. That's not kind of、uh, adulterated by the co-production by the China component. These films actually do not do well in China, and if you read、uh, the online reactions, you know bloggers and they hate this and they say it's so fake. They would prefer just pure Hollywood blockbuster films. It's, it's still tremendously,、uh, you know, thrilling for the Chinese to watch these big Hollywood films, and that's that's another thing that you know、uh, Hollywood Chinese has continued to emulate the Hollywood style of storytelling,、um, and. That gets back to the the same question: What films sell well? You know, who tells a good story? And apparently, the model, the the goalpost, you know, is 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 still Hollywood. So, I mean, looking forward to go back to our question right at the beginning.、Um, I mean, is it possible that China will sometime in the future achieve Stalin's aim and start in some way to control Hollywood? I don't think so. I mean, I think. First of all, China's such a big market itself; it doesn't need to. It doesn't, it doesn't need anyone else. Like it could just focus on itself, and that's perfectly sufficient. On the one hand,、um, which might be less and less true for Hollywood. So, if anything, it might be Hollywood itself cannibalizing itself and turning more towards China because they need that market, they need that boost that's coming from Asia, as opposed to the other way around,、um, to, to some extent. But I think the thing that's been interesting to me as I've come into this role. Um, and just tried to learn about the film industry, both globally and in China, from scratch. Kind of in the past couple of months, is that just the way that things operate in China is so different from anywhere else. Like its system is just too. It, it, it's not really matured yet. It's it's very in flux. It's not really of a pace with with what else is going on in in other countries and certainly in Hollywood, where things are very codified. The system is very mature. Everyone has their specific role and they sort of stick to that. And they you know they clock on at a certain hour, they clock off at a certain hour, and it's very codified. And China's not doing that at all. It's still a little bit. It's not the Wild West the way it was、um, a couple years ago when there was so, so much hot money floating around and so on. But it's still. Um, finding its feet and and learning, and I don't see it as in a state of trying to, you know, I don't, I don't think pitting one against the other or viewing it through a lens of is it out to conquer Hollywood is makes a lot of sense, despite the fact that it has the CCP behind it as this driving force and supporter and the sort of big brother overseeing it all. It's interesting though because you re- you recognize for the World War Two,、uh, the Chinese simply 
went to Hollywood and bought the entire crew member, special effects, sound, you know, technicians, even you know, the main actors, right? So um, they can just simply come in and buy up uh, your expertise. That's what they've been doing. That's one thing. The other thing is, if we're solely looking at the, look at the market, the Chinese market itself is big enough. You really don't have to, you know, uh, need to go beyond that. But it's really the kind of a, a, the, the desire for cultural propagation that's the driving force behind it. To me, it seems like the the focus is still very domestic. Like if you were, if your goal was to just spread Chinese culture to the world and only that, you would act very differently. You wouldn't censor content. You would make stuff that would appeal to other people. You wouldn't see that you have the top TV show last year, the most Googled television show of 2018 was Yan Gong, Yeah, the um, a Chinese palace drama. You wouldn't then turn around and say, okay, we're banning all palace dramas because they propagate bad values, which they did. Um, you know, so they, they often shoot themselves in the foot in ways that clearly ideological concerns that are domestic and what what they want for their own country are coming ahead of purely like how do we, you know, I don't know, some sort of crazy red scare takeover, whatever, insert comment here. <laughs> okay, um, Yingju, Rebecca, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> and to take us out this month, um, we are going to play a short clip of the one film that uh, Xi Jinping fears the most. Oh, I do like a party. Come on, Pei. What should happen if you forget about me? Silly old bear. I won't ever forget about you, Pooh. I promise. Not even when I'm a hundred. We should be working this weekend, Robin. But I, I promised my wife and daughter I'd take them away this weekend. All hands on deck. You won't be coming to the cottage. Well, it can't be helped. Your life is happening now, right in front of you. What to do, what to do, what to do. What to do, indeed. That was Christopher Robin, starring of all people, Ewan McGregor, banned in China because of Winnie the Pooh's unfortunate resemblance to a certain Chinese president. I'm Graham Smith, and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, Omni, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was edited by Andy Hazel with support from the Australian Centre for China and the World. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, background research by Julia Bergen, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.